May the true, pure, life-giving truth that our God restored to his church through the Reformation, that message of salvation by grace through faith alone, may it not only be your possession, but be valued by you throughout your life as your greatest possession. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, there's a time for make-believe, and there's a time for hard, cold, blunt truth. Make-believe, my grandsons crawl up onto my lap, and they want to hear a tall tale. So I spin them a tall tale, but I make sure they know, okay, Papa's going to talk about a tall tale now. Papa, we know that a cowboy can't rope a tornado and use it to put out a forest fire. Okay. There's a time for that. You see some old guys sitting on chairs swapping whoppers about the old days. That's a good time for make-believe. And they know it. They're not pretending otherwise. But here, what we do here in this place is not that time. Here, what we do in church, what we do in connection with our religion, with everything spiritual, that's anything but the time for lies or make-believes or myths. This is one of the truths restored to us through the Reformation. And that's why we begin, especially with thanking our God for Scripture alone, one of the three pillars of the Reformation, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Because we recognize it is the very word of God, true, right, pure in every aspect. No exaggeration, nothing untrue, no half-truth, exactly and only the truth. And so we turn to our text for this morning, the basis of our Reformation study, and we acknowledge again that the Reformation, above all things, was straightforward bold and absolutely true. That word on which we'll base our study is Paul's second letter, second recorded letter to the church in Corinth, the fourth chapter, the first seven verses. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So far, God's word, God's word alone, sola, scriptura, thanking him for these truths, the Bible restored to us through the Reformation, confident in the truth of these words, we pray, sanctify us, set us apart for holy purposes only in our lives. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Even historians acknowledge that the Church of Luther's day, the Roman Catholic Church, needed reforming. Even the Catholics today agree, sort of, to that. Yeah, there were a few problems with the priest. It, was, it had grown corrupt and immoral and needed reforming. It was more than that, much more than that, obviously. One of the greatest problems that, that doesn't it isn't talked about, it doesn't get mentioned, is the dishonesty of the whole thing, of the, uh, the whole Roman Catholic Church, the church, there was only one of that day. The dishonesty, not only with what they projected or said to others, but with themselves. Just take one example, one of the problems that Luther identified when he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, and that was indulgences. And we look at that and we think, seriously? Pieces of paper that you could buy with money that gave you the right to, the privilege to, whatever you want to call it, sin with impunity. You pay money, they write out, and they say, your sins are forgiven for whatever period of time, and you could carry that piece of paper around and do whatever you wanted and have confidence that God wouldn't mind. Nobody believed that's true. Nobody. They did, the people didn't believe it. Although the priest told them, I'm sure they knew. The priest certainly didn't believe it, so why did they do it? Well, like a lot of things, it probably went back to money. Maybe a, a more basic answer is they wanted it to be true. And that causes problems in our society, in our lives, doesn't it? We want something to be true. Therefore, we try to kid ourselves into believing that it is. So the priests of the day, the church, wanted the money that came in, that flowed in through these indulgences, and the people wanted it to be true. They could let that old Adam in them run free. They could do whatever that sinful side of them wanted to do, and they wouldn't have to be afraid that God would be upset by it. They wanted it to be true. But how profoundly dishonest, again, with themselves and with others. Nor was that the only deception of the day, not by any means. The greatest fairy tale in Luther's day was the satanic heresy that man could earn payment for his own sin debt in any way. And yet that was the sum and substance of their spiritual conviction because that's all that they were taught. You sin, and as in life when you incur a debt, you expect to have to pay it back. 
So if you sin against God, then you have to pay God back. So God raised up some honest men, some straightforward, honest men like Martin Luther and many that came before and came after. And these honest men contemplated this phenomenon, the idea that they could somehow give something to God like obedience, which they were supposed to give every moment of every day, which God himself, Jesus, described as just your reasonable service, the bare minimum, that you can just do something good and pay for what you have done wrong. And they could not reconcile this as true. That can't be true. There are many other problems, of course. Prayers to Mary, to the other saints, the infallibility of the Pope, purgatory, on and on. But the worst was salvation by works. Why are we talking about what others teach and believe? Why is it that here we ever talk about what somebody else has wrong based on what God's word tells us? It's not to condemn them. It's not to feel better about ourselves or superior. It's because we can thereby and should identify the same temptations, the same problems in ourselves. Oh, but we don't believe we're saved by works. We believe we're saved by grace through faith alone. True. But Satan is always prowling around that fortress that has been erected around us, looking for just a crack in a door, an open window, into which he can slide his half-truth, his doubt. You're saying, really? Really? Can it be that easy? That you get into heaven based on what somebody else did? And you can't even come to believe that yourself, except God does that? So from first to last, put it another way, your salvation is a gift of God, and nothing is required of you? So then you can just go do what you want? Obviously, there's a change in mankind that makes that different. That new man in us does not want to do something contrary to God's will. That old Adam in us does. And then we turn this around and we ask ourselves some other questions. Are we being honest in all things? In ourselves, as a church? Can we honestly say that we are about the Great Commission? That we are all about going and making disciples of all the nations if we never once witness to an unbeliever of the faith that's in us? Is that honest? Are we honestly saying to ourselves that this is the one thing needful when we spend so little time on that one thing needful? See, that's why we don't need to look at the faults of others. We've got enough. We have more than enough. More than enough that drive us to despair of self. Every time we start feeling pretty good about ourselves, then just look into the mirror of the law, of God's holy will, and that pride will be crushed instantly. And then we flee for refuge to God's infinite mercy, not what we have done, 
because we're failures, jars of clay, like, like all others. And then again, that message of salvation through faith in Jesus just brightens our day. It's the heart and soul, once again, when we stare into that mirror of the law for a time. It's the heart and soul, our, our pure joy. Nothing I, I could ever do could give me what God gave me freely through faith in Jesus. Reformation is, again, nothing if not straightforward. That's how we need to be, isn't it? And yet again, it's so easy to drift from that simple concept, straightforward, because all kinds of doubts and uncertainties come. So you, you encounter your brother who is, has fallen into some sin. It could be something just, they, they've adopted the world's, oh my God, where they say to everything. A new toothpaste, OMG. Maybe you do that yourself, but you see that, and what comes to my, no, God said I should go to my brother between me and him alone and gently identify that blind spot or that problem. But then, rather than being straightforward, and again, in a humble, loving manner, oh, I don't want them to be mad at me, I don't want to ruin our relationship, so I just won't say anything. Is that honest? Is that straightforward? The Bible is not that way, is it? It's not dishonest. It's always absolutely straightforward. Listen to how Paul described his life, his work. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. You can't trick anyone into believing. You can't take the Bible and you're not supposed to shred it and then have it pushed out through your own form so that it makes it, it, it's what you want it to be. Paul said, we gave up that. We don't try to style it as something it's not. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Boy, is that a good pastime today. If you ever, well, don't, but if you've ever gone online and read the comments on any spiritual statement, it's all over the board. It's everybody trying to manipulate or change something to suit their preconceived notion. Paul says, none of that. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's just pretty simple then, isn't it? This is what God says. Regardless of how you're going to feel about it, that's the part where he says, commending everyone to their conscience. But we can't do that with anything less than the straightforward truth of God's word. But you have to have confidence in it, don't you? You have to have confidence in the power of that word to accomplish what God wants to accomplish, which is the salvation of souls. And that's why we go back to that word so often. One of the reasons, it verifies for us, it reconfirms for us the, the truth, the solid power of that word of God. And armed with that confidence, as Paul said, we just put it on the individual. Will all believe and accept? No, but he touched on that too, didn't he? 
if they don't believe, if, if that simple message of salvation by grace through faith is veiled, they're the ones doing it. You can't change that. So then today, you and I, as then, need to be absolutely straightforward in every way. The stakes are too high to be anything less. And we're reminded that to tamper with God's word is not to improve it. If I were to take this watch off and, and say, take the back off and you make it better. Look at that. So also with God's word, changing it, fiddling with it, trying to improve it. Paul said none of that. Honestly, openly, straightforward, here's what God said. We shouldn't be surprised by this because all of God's word is just brutally honest and straightforward, isn't it? It's decisive. There's nothing weak in it. Already in the Garden of Eden, man sinned. God mercifully, decisively drove them out of the garden so they wouldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever. And then when he looked at mankind in that time between the fall and the flood, he looked at mankind and he determined they're not going to make it. I have a time set at which I'm going to, at that time I'm going to send my Savior, but they're not going to make it. So he, in weakness, in strength, and actually love for mankind, eliminated the human population but for Adam, or for Noah, rather, and his sons and their wives. Weak? Indecisive? Fast forward to the time of Abram. It's still, there's a problem. I'm going to need to separate out a people that doesn't even exist. And I'm going to give them special laws, very strict laws, because I know that the Savior, I'm going to send through that people, but I need to preserve them. So he told Abram, later Abraham, leave your land, I'm going to make of you a separate people. And then the most decisive, straightforward action of all, I am going to send my son into the world to pay mankind's sin debt. It's helpful if you have children of your own to get a, even a greater handle on this. And just ask yourself, if as the world is saying with their deceitfulness, with their cunning, with their cleverly invented lies, if it were true that there are many paths to God, if it's true that we could earn our way into God's grace and love and his heaven by what we do, if that's true, would you offer your child? Would, would you say, there's lots of ways, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to make just one more. I'm going to put all of your sins, I'm going to punish my child instead. There's only one explanation. The straightforward truth is that there was no other way. That's why God sent his son. Not as just an option, just another religion that maybe some will like. He looked and he saw that there was no one good. There was no way, because we're born sinful and we live our lives steeped in sin. There's no way that anything holy can come from that mess. So I'm going to send my son, my holy son, who will obey my commandments perfectly, 
and then offered that perfect life as payment on God's you know, on the cross of Calvary. And I will credit his perfection to mankind. The Church of Luther's day had separated all that out, hadn't they? They just removed that part. Said, you have to be holy. Yeah, we got that much. But what if I'm not? Well, then you have to be good enough to pay for the unholy part. Uh, but what if I can't? Well, then there's something that we invented called purgatory. To pay for your sins in a place that's bad, but not as bad as hell. Oh. And, and where in God's word do I find that? Well, you don't. The fact is, you and I are only where we are because of a drastic, straightforward, and decisive action by our God. Individually, every single one of us. The Bible describes it as dying with Christ. That's pretty decisive. And that happened at our baptism, that happened at our conversion, where that slavery to sin under which we lived was broken. We were set free. You died with Christ, Paul says. And now that new man can live to God. You didn't earn it. You were dead when I gave you that gift in trespasses and sin. You couldn't do anything. So I did it for you. So not only did I send my son to pay your debt, I sent my Holy Spirit to bring you to spiritual life. And not only that, because I know you can't sustain anything. Isn't that the truth? Anybody here ever keep a New Year's resolution? Not me. Since I know that you can't keep yourself in the faith, even though I've done everything, brought you to faith, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to live in you and to keep you in this faith. And here's a simple invitation I give you. You want divine power in your life? I'll give it to you every time you come to me in, in my word. Continue in my word and you'll be my disciples. Simple. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Thank your God. For the, this proclamation in our text, it isn't by works, it's by faith. But then, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Note the dramatic contrast that's been accomplished in you. Light, darkness, the two are incompatible. We were only darkness. Christ, Jesus, brought this life, this light rather, and thereby light into our lives so that you can now see, you can now look, hear, and determine what is true because you have faith, because you have life. You see that light and you recognize it, and that new man in you wants to exist in that light. But we still have that old Adam that wants to slink back into the darkness. Still, God pulls us back day by day when we beat into submission that old Adam and resolve to live according to that new man. 
The Reformation is such a blessing. A source of pride? Only in what God has done. Only in the greatness of God. All we do, according to our text, is as jars of clay carry this treasure around and share it. Share it in never-ending supply. It's that jar, we're jars filled with things that can never, will never run out. God, give us a renewed appreciation and thanks for the gift of the Reformation, the light he's shown into our hearts. Amen.